Hello and welcome to the Overly Animated Podcast, where we take animation seriously. We provide fan-oriented and analytic discussions on a variety of animated shows, movies, and anime, including Steven Universe and Gravity Falls. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Mel Moyer. Hello. Today, Mel and I are going to continue our Pixar rewatch series. Um, today, we're talking The Incredibles, uh, the 2004, I believe, Brad Bird film. Uh, Mel and I have review done these retrospective podcasts uh, on a few of them now. And if you search for Pixar on OverlyAnimated.com, you can find all the ones I tagged as that. And eventually, we're just going to go through them all and kind of talk about how our views on these films have changed over the years. Uh, oh yeah, like I said, OverlyAnimated.com. You can support our Patreon at Patreon.com slash OverlyAnimated. But yeah, let's get into The Incredibles. Uh, Mel and I previously uh, talked about Brad Bird's subsequent film, Ratatouille, the 2007 film, this one, earlier than that. I think we're getting into the kind of range of Pixar films now that were really like present in our childhoods, um, like right around this time. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, our views on them. Now, uh, we both rewatched this film and now we'll get into it. Uh, so Mel, um, what do you think of, what do you think of the Incredibles on this rewatch? Um, what did you originally think of it and how have your like views changed on it through time? Um, I love The Incredibles. Like, I used to... That was, like, amongst the films that I used to watch on a weekly basis. Um, This is the first time I've watched it in about a year, though. Um, And I know that for a fact because I made my mom watch it for the first time, like, a year ago. She doesn't watch movies. She was late in the game. Um, I still really, really like it. Um, However, going into it, watching it, knowing that I have the podcast at, does kind of color, I guess, rewatching it and kind of looking at certain things. Um... And I guess I kind of have a similar um, sort of like moral conundrum that you had with Ratatouille where I'm like, I really, really like this movie, but, you know, it is, and we talked about it a little bit uh, before this, that it is a little bit sort of very male-centric and male-oriented, and even with these, like, great female characters, they don't get a lot to do, and they're kind of relegated into very stereotypical female roles, um so that's something uh how about how about quality wise did (laughs) you quality wise um i mean i watched it watched it on my really nice new computer on my blu-ray so it looked really (laughs) nice animation wise um music still awesome animation still awesome um voice acting still good so from quality just sitting down watching it for entertainment wise still love it a ton thinking about it now dude discrepancies in my mind <laughs> interesting i've certainly biased um how you went into this film so background on this mel and i got into like some serious um kind of discussions on wally and ratatouille in terms of um like feminism and heteronormativity in those movies and how you like uh how you um merge your views on um liking a film a lot but it also not being super progressive um it's something i'm finding myself with gravity falls now too another one that's not super Super progressive, but none of these films are inherently problematic. I would say they're just uh, not not up to the standards of what you would like a film to be now. But of course, this was two thousand four. Uh, I was I was never as high on The Incredibles as everyone as uh, <coughs> everyone else. Um, my favorite ones were always Wally Ratatouille came out after this. Um, certainly, I watched it probably in theaters. I mean, it was, we were very young, and I haven't rewatched it 
maybe for over five years. Uh, I still remembered what happened, which is interesting. But I, yeah, it's been a while. And this today, rewatching it, uh, I was kind of blown away by it. I didn't <laughs> remember being, I didn't know how good it was. And it, that was it's, a shot. That's it's, a shot. It's, it's, plot twist. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, this, this film is um, kind of has everything going for it. And it's almost perfect. Uh, wow. Yeah. So I didn't expect to hold that view, but it's just it's just so good. I, the thing the thing that's interesting about this one, talking about these uh, merging things in your mind on your on our socially progressive views, but uh, have these um, inherently heteronormative films. This is the heteronormative film. This film is made to be heteronormative. Like the entire movie is based around this concept of a nuclear family. So it's it does this make it better or worse for? Um, it, in terms of uh, it, like being problematic, I don't know. Like it's it's trying to be what we might find problematic about it, which is interesting. Um, so I guess I'll start off with discussion there. Like I'll read um, this quote if I can find it from from Wikipedia, you know, of course. But uh, <laughs> it's talking about how Bradbird designs the uh, the superpowers for the uh, the entire family to be based around the typical expected role of the member of the family. Uh, Bradbird says, The dad is always expected in the family to be strong, so I made him strong. The moms are always pulled in a million different directions, so I made her stretch like taffy. Teenagers, particularly teenage girls, are insecure and defensive, so I made her turn invisible and turn on shields. And 10-year-old boys are hyperactive, uh, hyperactive energy balls. Babies are unrealized potential. So, like, basically, Bradbird's designed the entire concept of the film around a typical um, American nuclear family. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. And it shows, it's like, it's like, on one hand, okay, so the fact that this is what the movie about makes sense, right? Um, It's not just coincidentally uh, upholding societal expectations. It's purposefully doing them within the concept of the film. On the other hand, uh, it uh, it's... Just because that was the concept, it still doesn't mean that what happens in the movie is not like what happens. Uh, it's, it doesn't necessarily excuse any problematic things. But then, it, but that being said, nothing is really inherently problematic. It's just all stereotypical, which is the point. So it's kind of hard to. I'm having trouble like understanding what we should take away from this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of in a similar vein of Ratatouille, where I feel like it's just passively problematic, not because it's inherently doing anything wrong, just because it's just not doing anything. Um, it is kind of interesting the way he phrased that he did that based on expected roles. Yeah. Um, that I'm kind of not sure. I'm kind of I'm neutral on that statement. <laughs> well, it's not. It's it's like. He's conscious of what he's doing, you know. So the difference yeah. for me between this and Ratatouille, Ratatouille doesn't need to have a male gendered rat and a male uh, main ca- human character. This film does need to have the dad as the lead, kind of. I mean, it could have focused on the mom too, but if you're going based on societal expectations, then it needs to be the way it is. Mm-hmm. Ratatouille, there's no reason. So I True. think that's yeah. a difference. Yeah. Other than, like the only thing in Ratatouille is we discussed how. Um, the kitchen is very male dominated and how that is based on expectations. So that yeah. maybe is more of a direct analog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can get into this more as we go. Uh, just in terms of quality of the film, uh, it's, it's pretty, the writing is so good. <laughs> it's pretty flawless. Yeah. I'm used to always finding problems in scripts, but like, and, and so when like the biggest thing, like, I don't know, maybe I'm very, I have a very so- story um, narrative centric outlook on a lot of films and stuff and i certainly you do too but it's i always just find 
probably it's always very easy to find problematic lines and um like directions that the story goes in especially if you're looking for it here though um i didn't think about that like the entire movie like i was just into it yeah and that's just a lot of credit to this to brad bird's script here yeah no i and that was one thing watching it again i was like wow this is just like the thing with syndrome and like so yeah i mean that's that's a thing i look for a lot in when watching movies is i pay I like to pay attention. I mean, obviously you pay attention to the writing passively because plot, you know what's good, what's not. But just the way it was crafted here with uh, Buddy and Syndrome and um, Mirage even, like just the, the good writing on that as a, her as a awesome secondary character. It was just, it was, the way things played out, like was just so well crafted. Yeah. Who's the awesome secondary character, Mirage? Yeah. I I like her because, and this is like obviously she's like barely a character, but I feel like in terms of like secondary characters that you get a lot of the time, she stands out to me more. Um, in the realm of secondary Pixar characters, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> she's not like a bad secondary character. My I, my thing with her is that she's basically what you said, just not really a character, right? Yeah, she's not really a character, but she. So okay, so if, rules of the uh, Sid Field rules of of character writing is characteristics are aspects a character is made of choices. Um, not obviously she's not a character, but I I enjoy her from the sort of aspect standpoint. Yeah. The thing about Mirage that I like, um, there's like one thing I hate about, I mean, I don't know why we're starting with Mirage in terms of specifics, but we can get into her. There's one thing I hate about her and one thing I love about her. What the hate is like her function as like a seductress towards, uh, Mm -hmm. towards uh, Mr. Incredible Bob. Um, Mr. Incredible. Yeah, Mr. Incredible slash Bob. Looking at the Wikipedia list of characters. So (laughs) reading both there. Yeah, it's, I don't know how much I like that. And then, um. Not necessarily her in terms of her problems with it. It's not like she does anything wrong or anything, but just in terms of how we're supposed to see Bob still as sympathetic through that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, I don't know, but that Bob loses some sympatheticness towards me when that's happening, even though he's not like cheating or anything. It's uh, he's obviously drawn in and disillusioned with uh, with his wife in the beginning to a certain extent. So uh, I don't know that 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 I feel like that part's real, but it's not appealing, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. The thing I do like about her is she's the type of character in a narrative which I find um, very refreshing and realistic because uh, you have this uh, villain who we can accept him as being just this weird evil guy. There's not a lot of backstory with him, but there's maybe enough for us to accept what he's doing. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone around him is going to like is going to also be just illogically evil and uh, not care about basic like humanity so i like i like characters like her functioning within these super like villain plots as like maintaining their humanity throughout um these like through through these terrible people around them mm-hmm. uh it's just it just feel it she just felt real to me with uh with that even though of course why is she selectively caring about children when like um tons of superheroes have he's been killing superheroes off you know i feel like that's a common trope though that people pull in in movies is that you kind of use the kids as a living prop at that point where they're like oh i don't care about you know the 15 adult humans i killed but that kid tripped so 
you know it's yeah. it's it's a very easy trope i think to to make someone try and force a sympathetic view on like a villainous character yeah, and i think i think it, it works here although if you like try to get into it too much it's like why is she selective this selective yeah. in her morality you could make you could you could make the argument there's an element of sort of unintentional sexism there that it's a woman caring about kids yeah i agree so i agree but i also think that uh I mean, personally, I would like if there's a male character too. It's it's the same, basically the same things happening. Like in terms of why are they caring about the kids as opposed to. Um, I also I also think it's interesting if you start to look into that sense of morality from her. Like, did she uh, did she get a sense from uh, Syndrome that that uh, the supers are like not human humans, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how she justified it in her mind, working for him? Also, what's their relationship too? Is she? Are they? No, she, she. That was. I had questions. There's about only that one too. scene like that suggests that they're lovers of some capacity, but uh, the rest it could just be assistant too. Um, so that's an interesting. She's like the the Delphine of this orphan black. She's I, the, do, I do not understand. A, someone out there will understand. <laughs> uh, okay, let's back up a little bit. A lot of people call The Incredibles the greatest superhero movie ever made. They uh, also say that about Spider Man too. So let's. <laughs> I don't, who says that about Spider-Man? A lot of people say that about Spider-Man 2. Look up the reviews on Spider-Man 2. It's like weirdly, ridiculously acclaimed. What even happens in Spider-Man 2? Doc Ock. And like... I don't remember. That okay. stuff. It's, it's, it's either like this or the Dark Knight, I think is the most common refrain yes. here. But, uh, it's, but to me, watching this, um, this is to me more of a spy movie than a superhero movie. That's the weird part. It does have a very, like, 1970s kind of spy feel to it. If you it. read the Wikipedia article, Brad Bird's all about calling this a 60s spy movie. Like, yeah. Yeah, in his analysis of it. Yeah. It's it's a weird merging that really works somehow. Yeah, well, and that was my thing with the music, too, is the music is very sort of espionage-sounding more so than it is, like, the, the theme from Superman or something. And yeah. it does operate, I think... In that, like, it's interesting because I feel like if you look at it, it's like, okay, at the beginning you see all the supers. I feel like that was sort of the heyday of, like, the Superman-style superhero. And now what we're looking at here is kind of more espionage because, you know, they are, they're living in secret, like, basically have their own witness protection program thing. So I could could see that, you know, as the tone making a lot of sense. Um, But it does, it just works really well. Yeah, it kind of merges, yeah, from superhero to spy, and yeah, the sa- the soundtrack is intentionally '60s spy movie based, uh, and it's it's really good. Um, also, side note, I think this movie is interesting in terms of the witness protection program thing. It's like interesting in the context of current films because Civil War is coming out what the next year or something. Yeah, and I think it's a lot about how the government's dealing with superheroes, right? And this film has a lot of elements like that too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be interesting in that context. And, you know, the sequel for this film might come out sometime. It's not going to be for before Civil War. But in development. We will talk about the, the potential <laughs> sequel towards the end, yeah. Uh, it's the You brought up the beginning. The beginning mm-hmm. is, I didn't remember, uh, the beginning is stunning to this movie. The first 15, 20 minutes um, before they cut to the current, it's so good. Yeah. it's I don't know. To me, it's like even better than the rest of the movie. Yeah. Which is, is pretty... Is pretty. It just so seamlessly moves between things that Mister Incredible is doing, like uh, before the the wedding, and it's so seamlessly building all this backstory for the for the presence and unraveling the narrative. Uh, and 
it's just very appealing and very well done. I don't know. It's I didn't remember. Like I always think of Pixar movies of having better beginnings than ends, but I always think of Up and Wally. I didn't even remember that this one also falls in that category. Yeah. No. The. I mean, that's. I think it's just a staple of this kind of film's writing style because we didn't see it in Ratatouille. That it's. I don't even. I'm trying to come up with a word for it because like sort of twisting is not what's happening there aren't really there's only like one major plot twist it's just it's a very it's almost a very complicated plot particularly for an animated film like i think it's it's got a lot packed into it and even those first like i guess it's about 10 minutes long those first 10 minutes it's like there's they've packed a bunch of exposition a bunch of of uh character introductions and and world building so seamlessly well into 10 minutes and then it just continues throughout the movie and i just i that's that's really that that, that's very much top-down writing but it's very very well done yeah uh okay so this is gonna be off topic a little bit but you're the perfect person to talk about this with so uh, uh, what was that i said hey oh yeah yeah so talking i want to build on this um beginning uh Mm -hmm. beginnings better than the end thing so up is the best example of this right yeah Um, and but also wally has it so i think wally is kind of what i want to focus in on it's kind of how the concept to the film is really well uh, established in the beginning and then when you need to apply a narrative arc to it uh, it kind of uh, stumbles like the narrative yeah. doesn't hold up to the concept i want to bring up a lot of movies here i want to bring up this one um because it starts really strong incredibly strong concept and if if there's a weak point to this movie it's once they're running around the island um so that's kind of where the narrative arc is coming in uh, would you agree that uh, if that if there's like a down point to it yeah yeah it's definitely. just like when they're all separated that kind of is a long it's, it's kind of a long which sequence. that falls that falls in the typical area where the that sort of like lull happens yeah. in films in the 60 minutes between the first 30 minutes and the last yeah. like 10 yeah so yeah another one that uh jumps out at me is frozen uh, a film I will definitely discuss here. I mean, Mel's <laughs> very passionate about, but Frozen, incredible in the beginning, also has a great uh, first ten minute sequence. I, personally, I love the build a snowman, just how that functions within the movie. It's just so great. And then once they uh, embark, specifically, I'm um, sorry, adults. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like once it's uh, Elsa and Kristoff. Uh, Kristoff. Once they're in their little, once they're on their little buddy, get back to the you know the typical get back to this place. Um, once they're on their journey to do that, then the move that's certainly the movie's weak point, and it's like, who even cares? Uh, so there's this just there's the trend, um, I don't know, maybe there's others that uh, that uh, you have the beginning established concept of the movie and you establish it really well, but then when you go on a narrative arc, uh, you don't do well. How that being said, there's an opposite too, there's a lot of movies that struggle with exposition, but once they get into it, they're really good, and the one that jumps out to me is um inception um which is one of my favorite films of all time but so i don't really have these complaints but a lot of people say this movie is way too exposition based there's like 30 minutes before we get into any action in it um and then but then once it gets there and once they're going through all the different uh, levels of reality then it's really incredible so like i guess from a how would you explain this uh difference from i don't know from any sort of narrative uh professional narrative perspective and like what do you think is do you agree with me and like what do you think i'm talking well, about technically so what what's technically what you're talking about is what's known as like um there's there's varying degrees of how long it takes but there's this thing called the 30 minute plot point where the first 30 minutes of your film is you're building the world you're building the character you're introducing the audience to um 
all of this. And obviously, like something like the opening scene of Mister of uh, the Incredibles isn't going to take thirty minutes. Like that opening ten minute sequence. That's not what you're doing. It's just you're building the beginning of the narrative arc. Once you hit a th- the thirty this sort of thirty minute plot point that's when you sort of jettison your character into much faster paced narrative um, uh, flow. So uh, example in here, the 30 minute plot point is um, when he chooses to accept the, the message from the first message from Mirage, because what ends up happening here is then you've got your character makes a decision that um, the technical definition of it is that they make a decision that that permanently changes the state of their world and they get there's no going back and then you move into the second act of a film so i think it's it's sort of the tension between establishing concept and then starting narrative because those two aren't always the same thing and a lot of times they're not is that you sit down and you got this idea but you've got no narrative arc for it and then that comes in later i think that's what happened a lot with wally because what happens there what would and obviously this isn't always 30 minutes because you got a 90 minute film you're compressing this but that's just what it's called so 30 minute plot point in wally he jumps on the um rocket with eve and and then the narrative begins so it's just the i guess a disconnect in certain films between opening establishing concept and world and then the beginning of the narrative yeah wally is the perfect example for this like yeah. it really it really has the first 30 minute concept and then it gets into the, the mm-hmm. narrative arc like so why we've we just the another example to bring up is inside out i think the recent film mm-hmm. uh that's another one that goes on i think it's just the exact same plot as frozen um they need they need to get back to the certain thing once you get into that but it takes a while to get there it's, it is probably 30 minutes and the beginning 30 minutes are probably better than their little journey back to the headquarters um yeah. So it's like, why are so many of these films struggling to uh, introduce an interesting narrative? I think that's the question. I mean, that's, I guess that's just the nature of the beast. Um, the thing about screenwriting is, is that it's a very, it's a super duper confined, um, confined um, writing medium as opposed to something like books or or short stories because and even even more so than television it's just super duper strict to write a screenplay because you have a formula that you have to follow like every you can map this out in any single every single movie there's the insight there's the opening there's a 30 minute plot point there's 60 minutes at least of of rising action at 90 minutes give or take you will find your characters at the lowest point they could possibly hit and then the climax happens and then the falling action that's every single movie you know and and if they don't do that then they generally aren't very good movies um but i think it's just i think it's just the nature of the beast thinking to yourself oh i have this really good idea about a movie about a robot that's the last, you know, sort of moving, quote-unquote, living thing on Earth, and then being like, okay, how do I turn that into a movie? I think it's just people doing concepts before they've got sort of these characters defined. And in a perfect scenario, your characters are the ones driving these plot points instead of the plot points sort of happening to them and them reacting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's just, it's a it's a thing. Do you, so do you think that this is, so what's the problem here, I guess, is my question. So is it the traditional way in which uh, work people are expected to write screenplays, you you kind of, I feel like your answer to that is going to be no, because you said that uh, 
if you don't do that, then it's not going to be a very good uh, film. No. So I feel like you don't think that's the problem. But there's another, but that then you got into it at the end. Or so is it that, or is it people writing concepts rather than like character journeys and characters? I think it's it's more. I mean, I'm I'm not convinced that the formula writing process is perfect either. Um, I think it works really well, and it and it obeys sort of the three structure arc and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I do think it's honestly just a lot of people doing concepts without following through on it, and that's like everyone does it because you're more likely to think, "Wow, what if I was writing a story about insert concepts here?" Instead of saying, "Oh, I had this idea about a character like." what kind and then doing it that way so it's just and it's all the thing about films is that they're more likely to be genre-based um than character-based than than books i mean books for the most part unless you're getting into sort of like ya dystopian they're very very character-centric and character-driven films most of the time especially something like the incredibles and and pixar films most of the time it's things happening at characters um, because it's it's adhering to genre standards, mm-hmm. um, which isn't inherently bad, um, but at the same time it can yield kind of frustrating uh, responses when narratives don't meet um, sort of promised concepts at the beginning. So let's compare this movie to Wally. Um, now I think Wally actually is a better film than this. Uh, like personally, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. But narratively, like this movie is more seamless than Wally for sure. Uh, so, but this film and Wally both have like a concept establishment point. Wally's is longer uh, than this one's, but the difference I think is Wally is like okay, it's concept, and then there's the plot on the ship which didn't exist before. This film, I, I think, kind of blends its um, narrative arc into the concept in the beginning. I mean, you introduce the villain in the, in, within the concept uh, introduction. Um, you kind of introduce the struggle with the very nature of the concept introduction that's kind of carried throughout the film with like the hiding of their uh, superhero identities. And um, I think it just really works pretty well. Like even though there's a kind of a low point in the action um, somewhere within the narrative arc, it's pretty seamlessly integrated. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's certain that's certainly one of this film's biggest like strengths in terms of script. But what what is this doing differently than maybe a Frozen um, in terms of better integrating its narrative? Um, I think I think this this owes itself to being a more complicated narrative than Frozen, and having more characters and more characters who have defined arcs. I mean, Frozen it was. It was Anna and Elsa, and it was a very straightforward story. And it was a story, for the most part, like you take away names, genders, what have you. It's a story that we've seen many, many times. Um, this is a more difficult to pin down plot line. I mean, if you look at Frozen, it's um, it's it's the plot line for that, and sort of the relationship it's focusing on focusing on is very genre. Like you know, you look at that and you say, okay, like I've seen similar movies like that where you've got estranged uh, friends, sisters, siblings, what have you, who are trying to to relearn how to um, be around each other. Incredibles, a little bit more difficult to pin down, like what the what you would, the, the one word uh, you would give to this sort of narrative framework, because it is, on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's, it's a guy trying to relive his glory days, but that's not the plot line. That just causes uh everything else that happens after and you've got like syndromes trying to to get revenge on being 
on realizing that his hero was kind of a jerk. Um, you've got the kids in their own sort of uh, realm of, of narrative arcs trying to come to terms with being kids and being kids with superpowers and that sort of thing. I think what makes this better than something like Frozen is just that there's so much more going on and it's so clearly defined and so, so, uh, I hate using this term because I hate when people say, but it's like, it's meatier, you know, there's, there's, there's less fluff and there's a lot more strength and structure to these characters and these stories than there is in something like Frozen. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I think narratively there's a lot more going on here than Frozen. I think there's a lot better world building here. Like I don't get a sense with Frozen that their kingdom has any sort of substance to it. And I feel like a lot of the developments like I don't I've only seen the movie once. A lot of the mm-hmm. the people coming over for their big party or whatever, that just seems like oh that's tacked on to the established thing that before and within this this world feels very real however i actually think Anna and elsa might be better characters than anything anyone here so i don't think it's necessarily like like it, like better developed characters right well, we spent between the two of them i'd say Anna is the stronger character. Anna's certainly a strong character but like i don't think there's a character in here who's as well developed as anna as in the incredibles i mean um like i feel like the incredibles maybe spreads their characters a little thin in, in that regard I'm not sure if it's that so much as that Anna's just got a more interesting characterization. Um, Do you think it's more interesting in general or more interesting to me? Well, in general. I mean, this is, I'm not, this is, I I think it's more interesting to look at what Anna's going through than it is to look at what Bob's going through. Because this goes back, I think, to sort of the issue of them being purposefully stereotypical. Because you've got this middle-aged guy Mm. having a midlife crisis that's not super interesting or new um, but then you've got Anna, a character who's like a very insecure, very well-rounded female character who um, comes out a much, much stronger person at the end. I think that's a lot more interesting to look at than than the mid- midlife crisis story. I also think we just spend like way much more time with Anna than any specific character here. Yeah. Because yeah, Elsa drops off like the face of the earth. And yeah. And we kind of have a sort of pull through the movie. Yeah, we all we have a strong introduction to um to Bob, but then there's a solid half hour of the movie where he just doesn't do anything too. So I, I don't know. I just feel like I feel like the strength of this movie is not its characterizations as much as it is its narrative uh its narrative composition. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Which is which is interesting. Um, that that makes me think maybe maybe extreme character development isn't always essential no and like i said genre genre fiction genre films like they can get away with that and still be considered really great stories because you don't obviously in the world of of entertainment media you don't need characters who are super pushing pushing the plot that's why we have this joke you know in in writing workshops something's a literary darling but absolutely no one read it so it's something you know it's it's yeah it's super well character developed and the characters pushing the plot but nobody's heard of it and it wasn't on the bestseller list but the new yorker like just loved it so much so you've got something like this where it's genre where the characters for the most part very well defined not super duper um special or super duper complicated but the plot and the narrative arc and adhering to sort of different genre rules works flawlessly so it is possible it's and it's a matter i think of preference as well Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think we're kind of we're going a little bit. Uh, we're going over a few things here, but getting back to uh, Inception, which I brought up, I feel like that's a movie that has an incredible concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interestingly, 
the height of the movie is certainly how it integrates that concept into narrative. Uh, like, just the, a- the actual part of the climax of the film with them going through all the layers. I mean, you, I don't know how well you remember Inception. <laughs> okay, but it's it, that's a movie that really succeeds there, whereas in, expositionally it, it uh, is slower. Um, I'm trying to think of an animated film that's similar to that. I'm not sure I can Simpl- think of one. What animated film is like Inception? Well, yeah, I mean, not specifically, but in terms of um, better at the climax than at the beginning. Uh, oh, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure. Right Immediately now. thinks of every maybe. single climactic scene of every animated film. It yeah, comes up with nothing. Yeah, no. So maybe, <laughs> maybe a certain, maybe it's something about the medium. Uh, but it's that's that's interesting. Yeah. So we can kind of transition into talking. So we're talking about the characterization in this film, and we can get back to some of the other stuff we're talking about if it comes up again. But uh, do you, so. Would you agree with me when I when I say that none of the characters are particularly strong? I think you said it well when you said that they're like well established, but not necessarily. But then there's not necessarily much development beyond that for any of them. Yeah. 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 Like I feel like Mister Incredible is the main like the biggest character but he's pretty stereotypical the entire time he doesn't really grow or anything i think he's kind of the same he just finds because he gets what he wanted yeah he just gets what he wanted yeah and that's the interesting thing is because if you give your character what what they so like dan Harmon's story circle um is sort of a um offshoot of my my favorite the the monomyth the hero's journey but it's a more character driven one and it starts at point one character wants something and you go through all the different points and at the end it ends with uh, point eight which is character gets what they wanted and then they have to deal with the consequences that's not necessarily the end but that's the point is that there's no consequences here for bob yeah. for the most part yeah. um he he got exactly what he wanted at the end of the movie, so I don't I don't think that served his character well at all because it didn't force him to to change anything. I don't come out of the movie feeling like Mister Incredible is a good character. Like not <laughs> he's, he's fine, but like that's not what I think coming out here. Yeah, I have a better I have more of a sense that maybe uh, Elastigirl's a better character, although her, she how the movie handles her is pretty weird because she's not anything. Until no, the, until the second half of the movie, and then suddenly she is the main character for thirty minutes, right? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. She's very, she's very interestingly uh, uh, displayed to the audience. Even when she's the main character, though, she doesn't really transcend being a mom, right? That's no. the thing. But that's the thing with all of these characters; they never transcend their stereotypes. Yeah, which is kind of the point. Which is what we were talking about in the beginning. Like they're just designed to be stereotypes. You could look at it as some sort of form of parody or satire of um, superhero movies. If he's, you know, as he says, he's doing this on purpose and he wanted a very clear tone for it. And people are saying, oh, this is like one of the greatest superhero films I've ever made. That might be all part of the point is that, you know, this is what makes a good superhero movie. Yeah, so I think there's, I think you can make an argument that a large portion of this film's message is satire, is satirical. It's like there's this quote from the Wikipedia article. Um, Some commentators took Bob's frustration with celebrating mediocrity and Syndrome's comments that if everyone is super, then no one is, as a reflection of the views shared by German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche or an extension of (laughs) Russian-American novelist Anne Rien's objectivism philosophy, which Bird felt was ridiculous. He stated that a large portion of the audience understood the satire, whereas 2% thought I was doing the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged. I'm glad I, I was going to say I'm glad Alice Shrubs showed up in there. Um, I think it's a really good line, and I think it <laughs> it it services Syndrome's 
syndrome uh, very well. I'm not about to pull out some, like, you know, Anthem and Ryan Nietzsche crap about it, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the, in order to take away this message, um, so they, they cite two things, Bob's frustration with celebrating mediocrity and syndrome's comment. You have to you have to assume that both of those characters are correct in the views of the film, mm-hmm. which I don't think is true. But I think a lot of the viewing audience would be biased to agree with Bob on everything. But actually, credit to credit to Brad Bird. I don't think he's saying that uh, Bob, Mister Incredible, is right. I don't know if that's the point of the movie. He rewards him at the end in terms of narrative. Well, narr- the narrative saying he's right because he gets rewarded. I mean, yeah. that's when these things happen. If a character like Syndrome got to say that kind of unchecked, and he didn't really get flack for it, so I can see where people are coming in and saying that this is what the movie is trying to say because Syndrome got to say that, and then nothing happened because of it. Movie is also saying that Bob's correct in everything that he wanted to do and did because he again got what he wanted at the end with no real consequences. So, and that's how you how you separate whether what when you're trying to figure out well is is this character saying this or is this something the author is saying is when someone does or says something and it and it goes unchecked and there's no consequences. Um, so I think maybe it's just a a slip of not totally um punishing syndrome for that or not totally like having a comeback for that i guess i mean i don't know i think syndrome is not the problematic case here because he's clearly the villain and he gets his comeuppance you know Mm -hmm. it's i guess i guess the more potentially problematic thing is bob doesn't go unchecked well here's my issue too is that at the beginning when you when you meet bud buddy uh for the first time i think there is a a tiny bit of sympathy there to be had because he kind of gets treated like crap and you kind of and then when you've got a line like this that is a very slick well-written line you are sort of inclined to have some sympathy towards it and and agree with it a little bit i think yeah i i I don't think this movie is trying to make many statements no i don't i know at all i don't think that this is a statement at all i always just thought that was a really cool line like yeah what a great what a great villain line (laughs) it is it is good and i just i just don't necessarily think the film is agreeing with anyone specifically like i don't think any of these characters are are uh spotlighted or well-developed enough to ultimately like be an audience surrogate uh or not an audience surrogate but it sympathizes enough with the audience at the end like Mm -hmm. that were like their views were really interesting um i also think there's conflicting uh things like if you're if you want to focus so much on um bob like wanting to display his um incredible powers prowess then you could also like it's like that maybe that's a message but also just being your true self is like the message too like those those are two sides of looking at mm-hmm. at this thing that could be displayed at the end. Yeah. Ultimately, though, I just I just don't take away deep meaning from the film, That's, <laughs> which is fine. Like it is really a genre th- genre film, um, and it doesn't it doesn't need to. I mean, there's it, the movie like dangles these uh, deeper meanings like just enough to like not have you think that it's incredibly vapid, but not enough that uh, which is something Game of Thrones does a lot. Yeah, it does, it, does, it does. It does do that, and then not expand upon that at all. Yeah, but, but you've he, got these one-liners, and then yeah, but the, but here it's like it all relates enough, and it's more of a cohesive story unit um, mm-hmm. that I think at the end it, it it's it's like that's fine, and then we can think about it a little bit. But really, we're just watching the spy movie happen. So uh-huh. yeah, 
I don't know, compare, comparing The Incredibles to Game of Thrones. I don't know if we need to go into that. But, no. Uh, let's talk specific characters more. We talked um, Helen, Elastigirl. Do you think she ultimately comes off as a good character at the end of the film? Well, that depends on what you want from a good character. A lot of... I've seen... the EW ran this list recently. Oh, EW. Great content, <clears> right? Uh, that best female Pixar characters. Um, and Elastigirl, I think, was number two. And I'm mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. she's not i don't think she's a very good character at all she's none of these characters i think are great these are these are stereotypes that uh especially last girl who doesn't have any sort of focus on her until uh they she go out the plane blows up yeah no i agree i don't i don't i don't think she's a strong character in that um she's got a lot going on for her as a person in her own world <laughs> from from what we've been from what we've seen i do think she is a good character in terms of that she's memorable um and she has great again it goes back to yeah great qualities great attributes not a lot of choices to make her a character yeah and i think it's it's she's certainly super interesting with uh, her power and the way she's um she's using it like still maintaining the the mom of the family and protecting mm-hmm. everyone, but also being like a strong fighter and stuff. It's a very interesting um, concept model for a character, but I don't think it goes beyond that. No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Mr. Incredible. Do you think, do you uh, think he's transcends the last girl's characterization? Um, I think he does only because he's got a lot more choices to make, mm-hmm. but again, like he's, we've seen his character a hundred times before. So it is really and- interesting that he's just right. The entire film. He's never he's never wrong, and he's never uh, he's he never gets punished for like ultimately everything he does is correct. Like from disobeying his company uh, to um, that seems like the morally correct thing to going on this island, even if we look down on it for uh, for like him abandoning his family. It's ultimately mm-hmm. it ultimately is not something we really the movie portrays as bad. I think. No, um, I mean again, like there's bits and pieces of places where you're like but again like he 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 doesn't he doesn't ever really like there's that moment at the end where he's like talking to helen and he's like i can't lose you and they have that sort of moment but beyond that like there's nothing there's nothing really um that that's saying what he's doing is wrong or Mm -hmm. that his intentions are wrong yeah and then there's the kids uh who kind of have unlike the parents they actually do change at the end i would say they like become more comfortable with their true selves is maybe their arc mm-hmm. yeah but both of them very little uh to, not little to do but little focus little time uh what do you think of you know dash and violet um again like it's it's very memorable characters i'm not a fan of the fact that violet's sort of insecurity is based on the fact that she's, like, got this crush on a guy and, like, her nice big moment at the end, I mean, after, like, she uses her powers to, the the shield thing, but, it's like, her, she's got that little ending scene where the guy asks her out and it's like, well, I'm not super happy about that that was the reason she was insecure and that's where the insecurities are are focusing on, but, I mean, I really like her as a character. Um, Dash, I think, is just a maniac, and I don't, I don't think he has anything beyond the fact that he's a maniac. I think of all the characters, he's the weakest um, because he's gotten really nothing. I don't think he's got any hurdles that he's going over the way that um, Violet is. 
um, besides like, oh, he's mad that he can't, he's not allowed to go out for sports, but there's nothing like inherently going on in him that <clears throat> requires deeper looks. The one thing I like with Dash is that he has nice moments with his sister, like mm-hmm. in terms of them getting along. I always yeah. look for that. Uh, okay, let's talk Violet. Um, yeah, so there's two components to Violet's character. It's like the foundation of her character is Brad Bird explained in that. Brad Bird explained in that quote was like her teenage insecurity, and so that yeah. manifests in her in her character in her arc. But it's but it's uh, the way the movie presents that uh, framing wise is based off of her inability to talk to the guy she likes, yeah. um, which is just also very stereotypical. And why should we why should we why should we expect this movie to go beyond the stereotypical traits uh, of the family unit uh, that because this movie is just inherently uh, stereotypical and heteronormative. Um, but at the end, she's taking, she's secure and she's taking control of the interaction with the guy, but it's still about the guy. Uh, same thing, I think, with with Elastigirl, Helen. She's still the mom and in, and in charge of everything, even though we don't get a scene with her at the end. But uh, she's just maybe more likely to use accepting of her powers and her true self. So this movie starts off at a heteronormative foundation at its Mm -hmm. core uh and then which which we view as problematic the the very notion of heteronormativity people who are socially progressive so this movie ends at at a heteronormative core it's still a family unit they still all have the same roles Uh, they end up at the same place this movie is not trying to subvert heteronormativity that's not its goal and this is frustrating because it's female characters are put in these very um, specific situations that is like they're required to be socially acceptable. Um, Helen's still a mom. Violet's still characters driven by crushes on guys, and yeah. it's it uh, it's not feel good moments really. I think to with her and the guy at the end. I think it's feel good enough because she's taking control of the situation. Like I was fine with it enough, but it's frustrating because. Why is the movie so accepting of heteronormativity? Like, it's I know it's the foundations, but can't we move beyond it at the end? Is like it would make them. It would be more moral. As it is, I think this movie is extremely amoral to me, specifically because it does not attempt to tackle its foundational heteronormativity. Yeah, and I think one quick way to do that would have been to just omit that scene at the end with Violet and that kid. I mean, obviously, I would say get rid of the plot line completely, where she's like nervous about talking to this guy, but. I think I think you might need Helen like doing something not involving her kids. The at Bechdel the end. test? <laughs> no, well, the movie does pack the, pass the Bechdel test because she talks to Violet, but uh, mm-hmm. it's in, in, which is not in a lot of passes of the Bechdel test are bullcrap. That scene was not bullcrap, like her talking to Violet. It's a really good scene and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like we're so the heteronormativity is so ingrained as Helen is a mom that at the end you need a scene of her not being a mom in order to like move beyond it i don't know if the problem can solely be solved by like having violet not because we also need to demonstrate violet's new development in some other way yeah yeah it's i don't know it's it's the movie's i think the movie's frustratingly amoral but at the same time based on its amoralness uh and by amoral i mean morality inherently in its definition not a factor not that it is not that it is advocating bad things, right? It's just that morals are not um, considered in this movie's plotline, is what I would argue. Obviously, superheroes are like these very moral characters, but from a social progression standpoint, watching this movie, it just seems very amor- immoral with the heteronormativity at the end. Um, and 
watching it amorally, I think, kind of allows you to like take off the uh, the the goggles, kind of mm-hmm. the the real person goggles. These are not these are not something that's not that are bad or not inherent. These are just what you should wear in your default life, these goggles. Um, but you can just, the movie very early kind of tells us don't watch with these goggles, just accept it as like an exciting, just a kind of almost brainless film. That's the yeah. thing. I feel like it ends up being more brainless than uh, some other, like, I feel like I feel this film is more brainless than Wally or Ratatouille. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, what, what are your, what's your reaction? to? I mean, I think it's, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the movie is purposely not trying to, to do anything on that front. However, I also don't think that's an excuse because I feel like something like this, having getting rid of those like heteronormative stuffs, stuffs, heteronormative stuff, but still being exactly what it is, would be great for progression because you see this really amazing superhero movie that follows all sorts of like genre things and is for the most part, quote unquote, normal, having these progressive stories in it and these these more inclusive um, characters and, and plot lines would have been awesome. That being said, it was 2004 and they were going full on for every single possible stereotype they could get nab from a spy slash um, superhero movie. Is, um, that, is there an argument that you that you eliminate the, the realism of this film if you go outside of this heteronormative bubble? Like, like I mean, you- that's 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 the basis I think for all sorts of arguments that people make about like why aren't certain people included in this movie and that sort of thing because people you know like to say okay the genre specific this is heteronormative as a cultural history so therefore we have to portray that in this stereotypical movie about superheroes or people claim historical accuracy for for films when they don't include um, people of varying cultures and continue to be heteronormative so on the one hand like there is an argument I, I guess for that but at the same time I think suggesting that that the nor like by not doing that and saying oh well we want you know we, we we'd sacrifice genre or sacrifice tone or normativity by doing this is kind of unhelpful to <clears throat> to to these groups and and to getting this out there because i think again it goes back to what i was saying in the ratatouille podcast where we're trained to see narratives a certain way we're trained to look and see you know guy girl <clears throat> the guy is the hero the woman is is sort of as as Helen's used in this, like the bargaining chip or the thing that he's saying he doesn't want to lose and that sort of thing. Like it's something something to be to be um, dangled kind of dangerously and all this other stuff that happens in this movie. It's all part of a narrative that we've been taught to crave. Like we've been taught to crave male centric stories over female. So the thing to do is to insert into these things non traditional, I'm, I'm not going to say like normal or common, but just non traditional stories. You know, you didn't have to have it be a super, super 1950s nuclear family. It could have still been like a nuclear family, but it could have been, you know, any number of different combinations of, of parents or kids or what have you. And that's how you start to break away from teaching people over and over again that these are the stories they want to see um yeah i mean i i agree with you obviously but uh playing continuing to play devil's advocate here uh it kind of brainlessly doing so it uh <laughs> it's 
it's uh, th- this movie. I don't think is clearly not trying to be moral. That's that's kind of my argument. It's not my thought process here. Is like, so I'm trying to get in the head of Brad Bird writing this. So this, I don't care about morality. I just want to make a resonant film. Um, so I think making this the stereotypical nuclear family would resonate more people with re- with more people, and especially given that this is inherently an absurd concept. Um, people just having these. Uh, these uh, superpowers, even the kids genetically passing on superpowers. I mean, it's all just kind of absurd. And um, so we want to ground this film in reality as much as possible in order for it to be acceptable. And to do that, we're just going to have these self-insert um, nuclear family characters <clears throat> who uh, who don't go beyond their stereotypes. But the fact that they're stereotypes and relatable really brings the whole entire film together and makes it like one of the most real movies um that Pixar has done, even if it's an incredibly absurd concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I guess, sort of not going beyond the um, suspension of disbelief when you've got something like this. Um, at the same time, I would push back and say there's nothing... I mean, obviously in the public consciousness, yes, like seeing uh, anything but stereotypical nuclear family in this would have been a put-off, unfortunately. Um but at the same time, I don't see anything to me at this point, like in 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 my life and sort of looking at other people in society. I don't see anything different between stereotypical nineteen, like putting putting in a family that's not the this sort of stereotypical nineteen fifties family. Like to me, that wouldn't have, and that's just because it's me. And like maybe I've I've trained myself to look at it this way. But to me, that would not have hurt me accepting this concept let's say let's say you're gonna write a film for disney um this big budget film oh man um it's expected to be very successful with a lot of types of people and resonate very much um how do you kind of uh balance um your desire for social progression and um morality in a film with uh the desire to write a film that will be very far-reaching and successful i mean say it's this film you take out Violet's subplot with this guy. Like, let her be insecure, but don't let it be about a guy. Um, give Helen something to do that isn't homemaking. Um, give, sort of, maybe even make your main villain female instead of, you know, having this sort of, like, stereotypical cackling guy, super villain uh, mad scientist type deal. I mean, there are ways to do it within the framework of this movie that wouldn't have put off um, from from the tone and, and, and everything else. I think it was just going for super duper stereotypes. Again, like you said, mindlessly doing what it was doing. I think a little bit more self-awareness would have led to um, a slightly more progressive film. And to say that things like not giving a teenage girl her her focus in the movie a guy is progressive is kind of sucky that 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 we have to call it that and not just call it a story but um so you think you can achieve some semblance of social progression within this movie and still have it have its base heteronormative concept because that's because that's the tricky thing with this film it's based in and in a lack of social progression yeah no i think it's definitely possible it just, it's like I said, like there's things I could go through everything and, and say like, this is what you could rework. But the big things are Violet's story, giving Helen something to do that's not revolving around 
wondering about Bob and wondering about the kids and, and being a stay at home mom or a homemaker or what have you. Um, I think Edna Mode was a great character for that. Um, Voiced, yeah, I voiced, mean, voiced by Brad Bird. Voiced by Brad Bird. Which is absurd. Well, the the story behind that is the person they wanted, he came in and um he did like he was like, All right, this is what I want it to sound like and like did it and she was like, You already do it perfectly, so you should just do it. <laughs> so he did. Um But yeah, I mean I think there's ways to work around this heteronormative narrative framework to to make it less stereotypical. Yeah. Um I wanna go three different directions here even frozone uh super heteronormative in that he's like the black best friend right Mm -hmm. this movie is racially gender sexuality all everything is heteronormative about this yeah it's crazy (laughs) like everything is just so stereotypical uh american perceived culture even though it's not culture anymore and it it's uh it's so like is there is there like a defense of this? Is could the, could you say this film Brad Bird is making a comment on uh, American heteronormativism with uh, with this film? Um, you could. I don't know if you'd have that strong of an argument though, um, because I don't think I don't think he is. I think this is just he was showing using these stereotypes to his advantage when writing the the script. Um, and I don't think like it's a satire or anything, and him trying to point out and like if if there's one moment that maybe we're supposed to laugh at, it's um, the scene where Frozone's trying to get like his super suit. Like everyone knows that 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 scene, but I don't think even that I don't think is really asking you to laugh so much at the the domesticity of it and that sort of thing. I think it's like laughing at the exchange and maybe even making a you know negative comment about like a nagging wife. That scene is very, uh, upholds a lot of stereo- racial stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, it, I don't think it's commenting on it, though. I think it's just doing it. Yeah. Which is problematic, which is why, like, Tumblr's very um, obsessed with that that scene and that line. And yeah. it's just, that always just leaves a bad feeling in me, because that scene's not <laughs> great. Like, no. <laughs> especially you'd think Tumblr would realize this, but yeah, it's, I don't know. At the same time, that is, that is uh, a character of color in this film, which is like at least there's that right i guess even if he's mostly yeah. a stereotype yeah so i don't know how you balance it that's that's the thing with this entire film right it's like how do you balance i mean i i, I don't really know because uh, the concept itself i've just going on this again is is the stereotypical family but you can also do that and have them, the family, be black or have uh, it be, like, two moms. And you can still, I think, achieve the same thing if mm-hmm. it's just not everyone. Every, and it's like, okay, well, not every – this the typical non-social regression pushback does not every film ha- should be um, – should have diversity in it in fact it should represent the demographics of america and america's majority white and stuff but like the thing is that this film every single part of it is is the stereotype and it's not if you want to talk to statistically excuse me it's not uh likely that everything if you're representing an average american whatever it's not likely that all of this will uphold the stereotypes so it's specifically um being not uh, being heteronormative in the face of probabilities even i don't know yeah um 
we're even talking about before with uh <laughs> i don't i don't remember what i was saying but yeah during that discussion i was obviously not saying things i believed in certain times but yeah it's it's hard for i think it's hard for us to have this type of discussion because we're on the same page on it <laughs> like there's no, yeah that's that's what i'm trying to counteract a little bit but maybe not too successfully uh Getting back to characters, I mean, I use that to talk about Frozen, so that was good. Edna, Edna's a stereotype in herself, um, obviously. What's the what's what narrative elements from this film stand out to you? Because we're the thing we're kind of criticizing in this film in every way except the narrative, which is obviously huge. Like that's the most important thing. Uh, so it's uh, also I should say production wise, just almost everything is uh, is kind of flawless here. Uh, like. Like we talked about how Wally, like the animation hasn't even gotten better than Wally. Like I also think here, this this film could come out now and it'd be totally I would totally buy that in almost yeah. every single way. Like the only thing is that like they don't use cell phones prolifically. Like then that's a common thing with with uh, older stories. Like mm-hmm. I would just believe that this movie would be now. Yeah. It's just so modern. And I don't always think this think that about um, older films. And in fact, uh, older films don't. I mean, older films, 2004. But it is at this point older. It's over 10 years old. A lot of times they don't resonate with me as much. Not necessarily because they're an inferior quality. Although I actually would argue that films are better on average today now than before, which not everyone agrees with. Um, but not because of quality wise, but just because of like me relating to them. Like a lot of times, older films, I've I've I struggle with um, getting into them. Uh, mm-hmm. especially we're going towards 90s and 80s. But this one, I think, is just very, it's just all seems very modern and stuff. Um, and I think a lot of credit to the production side of things, the animation, the incredible score. Uh, but yeah, narratively, what... It's like, oh, let, let me get this started with the the, the capes. Um, like, this is really something... This is a great device that's used and really stands out to me. Like, they have this um, side thing for Medna, which is great on its own and really funny. And then it comes back at the end. Yeah. Um, and it's just really well utilized, I think. Yeah, so that's called a Chekhov's gun. Yeah. Um, basically, what that means is if you've introduced... So Chekhov's gun is, means if you if you have a gun on stage in Act 1, you better have fired it by Act 3. So that... This was a great example of it because it, it's disguised as sort of a um, just a, a little vignette. The, uh, the successful Chekhov's guns are ones that we don't immediately recognize. Yeah, as you such. won't. Yeah, you won't yeah. look at it and say. And then the bad ones are ones where you say, "Well, I, I need you to ex-, like loss." It's like, "Well, I need you to explain that point." You never went back to it. Um, so yeah, so the the best ones are ones where you don't know what you're looking at. So this is disguised as a sort of little just cutaway scene of this guy, or I guess it was a girl, got sucked into. Well, a few, a few there's different a, there's people, like, yeah, there's a few like different people got like screwed over because they were wearing capes. Comes back at the end, and that's how Syndrome loses is he gets sucked in by his cape, and he's wearing a cape the whole time. So maybe it should have been more obvious, like on the first, like. But that's what's so good about it is you see it, and then the rest of the time you're not even thinking about it, and then that happens. So that was a really great narrative element. And and it's so clever, and it makes his writing look so clever. Um, even though how he probably went about it was he knew how the movie was going to end, and then went back and made this joke. That's that's the way a lot of these things work. Is it's top down writing? Is you know your ending, and then you go back and say, well, how can I make this as mixed up as possible um, to sort of throw the audience. Um, I also think Syndrome functioning as a villain works really, really well mm-hmm. um, with Buddy at the beginning. Like, you get the feeling when you meet Buddy at the beginning that obviously you know he's coming back, but 
I think just the way they worked it out, because you don't see him until like halfway through the movie. Like he fights off a bunch of these giant robots like a few times before we finally learn that it's, you know, that we see the face of the person controlling them. And I think at that point you've forgotten about this kid at the beginning, even if he had a sort of like ominous note when he walked out. So I think Syndrome really and the way that they sort of like hid his story and then layered it back in worked really, really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one of those strengths of it. I, I forgot when um, we were watching it that there's like an entire thing in between him getting to the island for the first time and then the syndrome stuff. Mm-hmm. There's like a whole like uh, vignettes of him coming back and forth and fighting the robots. I think the robot itself is another thing that the movie does really well, um, portraying a learning robot and one and the uh, subsequent uh, plot reveals of how um, the superheroes were fighting um these earlier versions of the robot uh narratively i think that was really well done and even the action sequences of him fighting the robot is always uh it was always exciting and engaging i think yeah um bob learning about uh the whole sequence of him getting past the lava door and him learning all the secrets from the computer uh is just it was kind of flawlessly executed i think uh the entire pacing and like the franticness of him looking at the computer that just really stood out to me yeah um it's like uh, what else like there's just the the I, we talked about the beginning sequence but uh the entire thing of him going to the movie and him going to i don't know movie the wedding and him interacting with helen before that and then the reveal at the end of the beginning sequence that's just incredible i think mm-hmm. uh just the franticness in the beginning of him taking on all these different things uh, and then they come back uh, all these like different superhero tasks, and then they come back with the reveal that uh, the lawsuits are coming. Um, just very well handled. I mean, like we've cut. I feel like I want to like list a lot of these because we talked a lot of negative aspects about it. But I think overall, my impression of this was incredibly positive. This film, um, all said and done, mm-hmm. all everything with Edna. She was a great character. Uh, the how them showing or the, they showed uh, the suits in action uh the kids i okay what do you think of violet's um kind of arc with her force field um i think it was i mean for the most part i liked it i liked sort of the moments where it was a huge stressor like in the plane when um helen was yelling at her and she couldn't do it and sort of working on it and eventually getting it to work as sort of like the climactic moment at the end um it was all very good because I think it, it balanced well action with emotion because I just think that scene in the plane of them screaming at each other is very, very good and very, very real. So <clears throat> I don't have too many complaints about about that, if any. Yeah, I think it was fine. Um, her, it, it initially it bothered me that uh, she couldn't use her powers effectively while Dash could, uh, but it went on an arc where, like, she actually had an arc whereas Dash didn't, so I think it was yeah fine, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, she's the most interesting character, I guess, to me. Because you could argue that she's narratively one of the most interesting characters because she actually grows and um, has faults in the mm-hmm. film, unlike maybe everyone else. Uh, other aspects of the film. This film just is so good at portraying like suspense and um, like high high pace. Uh, I don't know how to like franticness, high pace, uh, fast action. Yeah, uh, just. There's just always this great sense of uh, this. This film really handles 
everything tonally really well. Just the tone is always very well established and very interesting, except for, I think, the one thing where they're all separated on the island. Um, and, but then even it comes together pretty quickly. Right? Like, I was bored like at one point, and then it came back very fast. So even that, I think, is yeah, was fine. Uh, what else can you think of? Good elements of the film. Um... I lo- oh, one thing. I like how uh, the rocket launches uh, into the city and it just does it. And it's kind of the side action, right? Like yeah. there's, no, there's no big focus on this, um, the main plot of the film, like him launching the robot to destroy the city. And then, uh-huh. and then it's also like a tiered reveal in terms of, uh, in terms of um, Syndrome's plan uh, of him trying to be the hero. Like, I feel like his motivations were a little off, but then his ultimate plan of him wanting to be the hero at the end, they really came together well for his character. Yeah, and that's another thing why I just, I think his his um, story arc is what makes this film so good, and the way they went about revealing um, his character. Yeah, yeah. that's he, he could be the strongest part of the film. It's possible. Um... What else? What else? What else? I like how the film ends, like the entire ending, the sequence of them all working together to to ultimately kill the robot. And uh, I like that the robot learns syndrome. Like, I think like that's very logical. Like syndrome might not anticipate the robot ever being a uh, to be being able to defeat him once the plan ultimately comes together. But ultimately, the robot realizes what he's doing. And yeah. like gets away the control stick. Like I feel like that's a very good um, portrayal of learning technology, like computer technology. Yeah. So I don't know. Just so seriously, like almost everything it does, this film does is incredible. I think. Yeah. <laughs> All narrative aspects. Uh, uh. What else? What else? What else? The babysitter. Why did it dash the uh, what? What's his name? The baby. Um. Jack. 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 Well, how do you think Jack? Jack. Uh, his superpower reveal. <laughs> I think it's funny because I think Tumblr's very obsessed with that as well. They like it comes up a lot on Tumblr. They're like the biggest plot twist ever, which it was, but it wasn't. Like it was. It, it was really hinting at this the entire time. Yeah, it was, and especially when you've got at the end when you get all those like random little yeah because they they talk like eight times like well what about the baby and he's like oh the baby doesn't have superpowers yeah. like it's it's said so much in your face that you're like okay, um, but I think the way that it happened at the end was very funny when she gets all the phone calls and then when Syndrome steals the baby and it just like goes berserk um, with like eight different like powers because it just hasn't settled yet so i think it was done very well i don't think it's as big as a big of a thing as people make it out to be though it was was fine yeah you can see it coming if you like pay attention for it because they do mention a lot uh syndrome at the end with the baby uh like one there's two aspects of brilliance to this one is again tone tone wise how they handled it it's just great like i don't know that explain it more than that but it just feels great yeah and the second thing is um you forget about him because the main fight at the end is with the robot and syndrome's like not a factor so him coming back at the end is like surprising and really good yeah that's uh that's a step in the uh return cycle and the hero's journey is um i forget it's like the 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 race or something during the refusal of return where you have one last hurdle you have to jump before uh you get to officially uh win yeah be that yeah i mean it's often not used actually um a lot of people ignore that in terms of writing they just they finish a lot cleaner than that in this 
didn't. So there you go. Normally, I get Little annoyed at the constant uh, bringing up of the hero's journey, but like this film is an obvious hero's <laughs> journey. It's an obvious hero's journey for Bob. Well, literally everything. Like he gets the call, heroes. and it's like this an is, actual. This is, but this is the everything is a hero's journey. It is. But some I, things are more obvious. This movie that. is pretty obvious, I'd say. Also, did now that I'm thinking about it, he gets the call from like an iPad. Yeah, but this knew. movie's in 2004. What's well, they up were with that? also like owned by Apple, maybe. Ooh. Maybe they were hinting us. <laughs> Apple like was put there earlier. And not owned, but like they. Basically... I guess ta- I guess tablets existed, kind of. I don't know. Like PDF, I think the idea like, of tablets assistance. existed. Uh, yeah, I guess the idea of it. Okay. Then um, we talked about her character already too. I, I and the scenes of um, her like tailing um, him and Frozone uh, uh-huh. were really good. And it's like you think she's going to be malicious, and then it's like she's not malicious, and then she is malicious. You know, like that entire thing. Yeah. Uh, them saving the people from the building and then ending up in the in the uh, bank. It's like I don't know. It's just all that was very exciting too. I don't know. Seriously, just every, everything's good, kind of, except you know the on a theoretical level. Yeah, maybe not a theoretical level, but on a higher level. Um, any other specifics or generalities revolving the Incredibles involving the Incredibles you want to get into? Um, no, I think we I think we got it. Yeah, kind of went on a kind got of high, high tail. <laughs> got him. High tail at the end to cover all the elements because we spent yeah. so long talking about unrelated things. But yes. I specifically brought them up. So that's my fault. Okay. Overall, Incredibles. Um, so we have, this is our, what, fourth Pixar, Pixar yes. film we're talking about? Yeah. So where does the Incredibles rank um, among the four we've you've seen recently and overall? Because uh, you've seen the other ones, obviously, and we'll mm-hmm. get a more detailed list as we keep going. But just overall, generally, where do you I mean, think it is? this is for the longest time. This and I, it probably still is is my favorite Pixar film. Um, I'm still trying to figure out where Inside Out's falling. I need to see it again. Um, but yeah, no, like I, this is like my top Pixar film was The Incredibles, which is why every year when they announced another Cars movie, I was like, but where's Incredibles too? Um, possibly, maybe happening. Who knows? Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, no, this is this is my top Pixar film. Uh, what about all film films of all time up there? Um, yeah, it's definitely up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had, I have uh, I've had this Pixar list. Um, probably made it like four years ago or something. I had Incredibles as number five behind Wally, Ratatouille, Monsters Inc. and Up. Uh, I was pretty blown away by with this viewing. Uh, I have no, like, I used to be annoyed by people who called The Incredibles their favorite Pixar film because kind of, that was kind of a, that kind of grew into a consensus among everyone. Among, like, everyone and it annoyed me because it's like, well, I resonate so much with Wally and Ratatouille's message. Um, and Monsters Inc. has a lot of personal meaning for me. Like, that was like my childhood film. And seeing The Incredibles get all the hype is a little bit annoying. But now, like, upon rewatch, the Incredibles is probably the best film, the best film uh, that Pixar has made, and one of the best films I've seen of all time. Yeah. I would say that. Uh, personally, um, in terms of favorites and in terms of my rankings, it's going to be still below Wally and Ratatouille, but I would move it up to the three slot right now. So that's what I'm going to do. Move nice. it from five to three. Uh, but this is just much more of a flawless film than Wally. But the difference for me is like I emotionally resonate with Wally so much. Uh, it just has a lot of meaning i gain from it but this film uh, i don't emotionally resonate with it at all right so it's like incredible filmmaking uh but no uh emotional resonance uh, as opposed to mm-hmm. wally but wally i think also has great filmmaking and has emotional resonance so that would be my top one and that's the argument i guess nice uh okay let's talk incredibles 2 for a second it is happening uh it's 
It's currently in production. They revealed in uh, a few months ago. It's his. It's his next film after Tomorrowland. He's making it now. But you saw Tomorrow. Did you see Tomorrowland? Uh, I did see. Tomorrowland. I have not seen it. Saw it at work. Did were, Did you like it? Not no spoil no spoilers, but you didn't particularly no, like particularly, it because no. I think feel like you could argue that that's Brad Bird, that Brad Bird's first bad film. I mean, I haven't seen it, but that seems to yeah. be because like he has not made many many films. Uh, Iron Giant. Um, we'll talk. We'll go over that at some point on the podcast. I haven't seen it in too long to comment on it. Incredibles, Ratatouille. Uh, then he directed Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, <laughs> uh, which is actually a really good film. Like I saw it, it's really good, and. Tomorrowland, uh, so apparently, so you could argue that's his first bad one. It's interesting. Him transitioning from animation to live action, uh, frustrating as an animation fan. We need Brad yeah. Bird directing animated films. He's too good. <laughs> yeah. Same with Andrew Stanton. And it, they're both back, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, so the, he is making Incredibles 2 right now. Uh, he says, he, he kind of claims that uh, he didn't want to do it until he had a good enough idea for the sequel. Um Everyone, the, the the thing with the common refrain you hear from people with involving sequels, especially for Pixar, who's getting into a sequel thing now, is that I don't want to see, I don't want a forced sequel for a film. If they if they actually have a good idea for it, then they can do it. But I don't want a forced sequel. So Brad Bird's trying to say, I have a good idea for it. I mean, the proof would be it's eleven years later, right? Yeah. So I've waited it and I have the idea and let's go with it. So are are you excited at the prospect of an Incredibles sequel? Uh, I am, yeah, because I think it's one of the Pixar films that was kind of built for a sequel as well um because yeah I, people always say that too yeah like it, it's the one that was really like why is it why to, is it built for a sequel i think just because of the world it inhabits and the fact that these characters didn't go through super amounts of changes like we were saying so therefore it doesn't feel like a complete like you look at frozen the fact that frozen's getting a sequel you're like why because they went through their narrative arc and they went through their emotional arc and they they ended up at a different place than they were at the beginning or back to where they were trying to get to from the beginning incredibles doesn't have that narrative arc so i think it leaves itself open to to playing around more with these characters and it's got a a huge mythology of the world that you can also just sort of inhabit uh, yeah, I, so I think Incredibles is not setting up for a sequel. Like, I feel like that's clear. Like, it's mm-hmm. no, there's no sequel hook at the end. Like, I, the the thing you might, I think a lot of people might misinterpret the uh, the John Ratzenberger character at the end. Um, I don't remember his name, but the Underminer, the Underminer, as that being like a sequel hook. But that's it's it's like a it's like a and and the world continues for the for the characters. You know, and this yeah. is the new world of. Uh, of the these of these people so i don't think there's a sequel hook but i feel like the the fact that um we see their lives after and their action continuing and there's still excitement in their lives afterwards and it's this new version of their world uh that that's sequel friendly like there's more stories to be told involving them yeah i'm not i'm not the thing is that these characters aren't great so uh i'm excited for bradbird getting to this genre again right and i'm excited for bradbird uh doing another animated film but i don't want the same concept right like i want them i mean obviously i'm this, i'm about to say this i want them to like focus in on violet and have a violet film obviously that's what i'm yeah. saying but something like that like it, it could be dash i would not, not like that as much as a violet film especially because he's less interesting in the movie but uh you want it to be 
uh, not about the family unit anymore, I guess, because then it's just the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. If it's just a, like this, this movie ends up with all them all fighting together and that's the big payoff and it works as a payoff. I don't know if it works as much as a concept. So like, I'm not sure what this, what story direction you go in here, but, um, something maybe you, I would, maybe you have a new character. It seems like they're going to be this returning characters because Sam Jackson says he's, coming back as Frozone, so yeah. it seems like we're going to be a... I mean, a Frozone movie could be cool, uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm not I'm not thrilled with another movie focused on Mr. Incred- Mr. Incredible. Which is hopefully why maybe it focuses on Dash and Violet. That'd be pretty... Yeah, uh, a sibling movie would be cool, too. Yeah. I would like that. Frozen. Incredibles 2. Frozen. <laughs> yeah, the Frozen already did that, I guess, kind of, but uh, Frozen has its own kind of stuff going on, and yeah, it's just in general exciting for Brad Bird to direct another superhero spy movie. That would just be incredibly exciting. So incredibly, ha! Yeah. Huh? Get it? Yes. Do you get it? Because I was movies. waiting for you to make that joke the entire movie. <laughs> I held off until at the very end. The entire movie. Oh my god! The entire podcast. The entire podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, just I, don't know, I was just kind of blown away by Incredibles again. It's It's I am almost never just like have no complaints about a narrative that. It's just so rare, and I kind of have just no complaints about this narrative. My complaint, our complaints about this movie are like foundational. Yeah. So it's, it's I I wouldn't have a problem with you calling this flawless storytelling. Me personally, calling it flawless. Anyone, I think it. I some, think it, it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, foundational problems aside, I think there's from what it was started out with and what it gave itself. I think it worked beautifully, and I have zero complaints about the way the story went. So and you know, you know what's so interesting is that Ratatouille is his next film, and Ratatouille kind of has narrative problems, but it ends up in such a magical place. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of different here. So Brad Bird's kind of capable of achieving resonance in different ways, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And not even <laughs> counting Iron Giant, which I don't know. I don't remember enough. It's it's coming back to theaters. The thing with Iron Giant is for a hot I second, have, I have like a really negative perception of it in my head because because Cartoon Network did these Iron Giant days. I got so sick of watching that film that uh, like as a kid, and I just don't remember anything about it anymore. And now you can go see it in theaters again. Well, I doubt I'm going to do that, but we'll watch it for this, and I'll probably love it because it's supposed to be very good. Uh, it's a very good movie. Yeah. It's a very sad movie. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of this, yeah. Sigh. So, okay. Uh, I think think that about wraps it up. Anything else? No, I'm good. Yeah, I think, okay, we, we've achieved our longest <laughs> podcast, I <laughs> think. That's On the, the one that Dylan said going in, I'm going to have nothing to say about this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, there's more. We talked about different, more different things than I thought. And I'm not, I'm not like as satisfied with the, personally, with how I got into, with how I tackled the main thing with our, how we see this movie in terms of the heteronormativity versus that what actually comes out like i'm not sure if we reached any uh as as many interesting conclusions as we did with ratatouille you know mm-hmm. i don't know it's a, maybe it's a harder one harder topic um i don't know let it let me know what you th- thought of this guys uh overly animated.com um you can let me know on dylan ova on tumblr and dylan underscore ova on twitter uh mel where can we find you um at melmoy on twitter themelmoy.tumblr.com still i I still have the dylan's still hoarding that you know i actually think i stole it for myself now that i think about it i'm pretty sure my first tumblr was melmoy.tumblr.com why can't you get it back then 
Because I don't remember any of the logins for it, so it's just sitting in the ether right now. Oh, like you don't even remember your email. Yeah, so okay. I can't go yeah, in and like problem. shut it down and take it back. So interesting. Uh, yeah. This is a, quite the problem. Um, th- you can support us on patreon.com slash overly animated. Uh, big thank you to our current patrons, and we're recording this a week before it's going to air, so it might. That's the thing with all the patron lists. Like, some, for non episode discussions, we'll record it earlier. Thanks to our current patrons, Shayna, Mitch, Cordell, Beatrice, and Nate. Um, so we got Hey Ya Fever, Mitch, uh, Cordell University, Beatrix Lestrange. Mel, you can choose which Nate nickname to go with. We're still undecided. Is can we can we can we do the can we do Nathan Fillion? <laughs> I did that on the last one, so sure. All right, Nathan sure. Fillion. You're Nathan Fillion. Okay, until Sam. Until des- Sam gets decides really mad to change and... it, yeah, <laughs> she will. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that that's about it. Uh, what which Pixar film should oh. we do next? Uh, um. What was that? What was that? that was me thinking. Oh. Um, I'm trying to think of ones that would have interesting things to talk we about. We did Incredibles now because someone on Twitter wanted us to talk about that. Someone on Tumblr has said, uh, after hearing that I'm not the biggest fan of Toy Story, that that would be an interesting one to hear about my complaints about Toy Story. What, for the record, where are you on Toy Story? Is that like a classic for you and you love it? Um, yeah, I mean, I... Because I... that, that would be the really interesting thing going into that podcast, like me being like really down on it and you being really high on it. That would make for the better concept. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm trying to think if I have an emotional attachment. I was one of the few people who didn't really care about the third one. Yeah, uh, okay, so we're not going to have, yeah, so it's not ideal. Like, ideally, it would be me destroying this film while we have someone who's, like, really emotionally attached yeah, to no, it. Yeah, no, I'm not emotionally attached to Toy Story. I, th- I, I feel like our age bracket is um, slightly younger than those emotionally attached to Toy Story. Like, for, like we talked about this in earlier, and for me, the big childhood movie is uh, Monsters, Inc., and Incredibles is around here, too. We can talk um, about a bug's life. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll do a bug's life. That's that's. Eh, I don't know if we'll get too much. To say. That's like a good but not great movie. You know, it's fine. It's a bug life fine. We talk about its its um its evil twin um ants. Ants? No, I don't think we're gonna do an <laughs> ants podcast. Uh, when we do Brave, eventually, that's gonna be an interesting one. It's just my bull. Um, fun fact: in Jurassic World, Brad Bird was the voice of the monorail announcer. Mm, I have not seen that yet. Yeah. That is quite a fun fact. Yeah. Wow. Good job. Thanks. Fun fact. Okay. That's it. Thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, I don't know what's next on the schedule after this, but uh, a question mark. Okay. So to be determined. Uh, (laughs) uh, We'll see you you next time. Overlyanimated.com for everything. Uh, Bye. Adios.